Finally, the universal symbol of freedom and liberty is flying in Cuba, someplace other than Guantanamo Bay. Stuck in the middle with you once again from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on 90.7 FM in sweltering L.A., 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast, and coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on the iTunes on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, on Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and five days a week on Radio Sputnik. This is your broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure. My thanks... By the way, to uh, Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com for filling in for us on uh, on your previous uh, thrilling adventure of the broadcast. Much appreciate that, Nicole. And do check out her show at RadioOrNot.com, where she is also five days a week rocking it over there. Thanks again, Nicole. Uh, big show coming up today. Uh, there have been, we talked a little bit last week about the several Cases concerning the death penalty. Good news cases about the death penalty, including a finding by the Connecticut State Supreme Court that the uh, that the death penalty is unconstitutional in that state. It had recently been struck down by the state legislature, but there were 11 men on death row who had been given death sentences whose whose uh, sentences were not uh, changed or commuted in any way. So even though it was illegal and is illegal uh, to carry out the death penalty in Connecticut. These 11 men were still going to head to the de- to the uh, death chambers. So uh, we will be speaking about that and the direction, the encouraging direction that the death penalty seems to be going in this country in, yes, the new progressive age, as we call it on this show. We'll be talking about that with Diane Russ Tierney of the National Coalition to abolish the death penalty. We'll talk to her shortly about that and uh, and and where this uh, death penalty is going. Hint, it's going away. But it may be a long and drawn-out process. We'll find out when we speak with uh, Diane Rustierney in a bit. Uh, speaking of long, drawn-out processes, it's hot here in Los Angeles. It has been hot out here in Los Angeles. It has been hot and dry out here in uh, Los Angeles, actually across the entire state. For uh, how many years now, Desi Doyen? Are we going on this? Uh, we are now. In, we are in our fifth year of record historic drought. That is, of course, Desi Doyen, our producer, my co-host on the Green News Report, and uh, this is the worst drought I, I think on record yes. at this point, right? Yes. Going back to the 1800s when we started keeping records yes. on, on all of this stuff. 
Uh, we talked a few weeks ago, you remember, Desi, about, remember we were talking about we were going to get out of town and we we're thinking, should we go to Vegas? And then the highway on the way to Vegas actually caught fire. It was <laughs> yes. the one way to get up to Vegas, up the uh, 15. The, there was a fire out there. We have fires all across the state now. This state is on fire. Uh, and, and not in a good way. And not, not in a good is there a good way? Well, for the you could state say somebody's on. Oh, that 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 oh, celebrity's on it's fire. On, it's uh, yeah. it's doing so well. Okay. And no, this is not in a good way. No, not in a good way at all. And uh, what was it twenty thirty cars ended up being burned on this highway, and people were running for their lives as the right. fire was jumping the highway. They had nowhere to go. And on that very same weekend, we had thought, well, the other thing is we could go out to Arizona, out to Phoenix, and at exactly the time we would have been coming back from Phoenix. There was a flash flood because there was this huge uh, monsoon from Hurricane Dolores, Dolores in, Mexico, in Mexico yeah. that made its way up here, ended up wiping out Interstate 10, the, uh, the other way, the only other way you get to, to Phoenix, Arizona from here. And that road was wiped out. It was six or eight hours uh, out of the way to work around how that. So we are seeing in these small but uh, the important examples, because they're striking home, uh, what we have in store for us as global warming increases as it gets worse. And we saw another small example over the weekend, Desi, uh, this fire as we were driving out, uh, visiting a, a friend in the hospital in the, uh, what do they call Inland Empire out here in, in Southern <laughs> California. Yes. For miles and miles around, you could see this huge black plume of smoke. And it didn't appear to be coming from the mountains and the trees where they're usually where we see these fires happen. It was sort of in the middle. It was hard to tell where it was coming from. We have now learned where this fire was that we were driving towards for a half an hour. It kept getting closer and closer. So it was sort of a grass fire. Was it, is that what it was? Uh, the corner of a highway? Uh, yes, it was, it's in a, it was in a, um, a flood control plane, which is filled with brush because obviously it's very dry right now and there's oh, yes. no flooding to be controlled. So yes, that was where the fire was and it took them uh, several hours, definitely. But, you could see the smoke column uh, from across uh, most of uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, and what was most troubling about it though and and obviously the fire went up you know like nothing because it's so dry out here but there's a bunch of oil fields right there yes there's most people don't realize yeah. that that los angeles for a time was a very big oil drilling area and there are rigs and oil derricks everywhere across the southland uh, and which is what still, we call southern california and it's still a big oil area we have yes. there's a lot of these active uh, wells that are going on uh, made worse with fracking, by the way. But these fires were, you know, if we thought it was bad enough now with these huge black plumes of smoke, imagine had those oil and they had to fight that fire back from yes. getting to those oil fields. Yes. Remember the end of the, uh, what was it, the first Gulf War when mm. Saddam Hussein set the oil fields ablaze? Yes, the, the largest man-made oil disaster in world history. Okay, I'm just saying... Yeah, it would be it, bad. As dry as it is out here with these oil wells all over the place and uh, going up in flames everywhere. Uh, I, this is a, a this clip that I'm saying right now. I hope this is not a clip we have to go back to and get at some point to say, oh, yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, that's a concern. That would um, be a conflagration, I think, is what they would it call it. It would that. be a uh, horrific conflagration. Yes. So uh, anyway, just the uh, the effects of climate change. Coming to an oil well near you.
Uh, speaking of oil wells, I know we're going we're to get into this uh, tomorrow on the Green News Report, Des. Uh, the final approval has now been given by the Obama administration to Shell Oil to actually begin drilling in the Arctic now that the uh, Shell uh, rigs have all made it up there finally. At After the the all the safety equipment is yep. now up in the Arctic, yes. Uh, actually, Shell has been drilling already a little bit, but they had to stop because they were limited in what they could do without all of the oil safety, oil spill safety equipment on hand. Now that ship that had been damaged and had been sent to Oregon for repairs, it has now arrived on site in Alaska and the Interior Department is pretty much saying, okay, go for it. Keep drilling. What could possibly go wrong? Mm -hmm. uh, and that, by the way, it's to me, it's amazing that the Obama administration approved that given that their own Coast Guard has been uh, testifying for years now that no, we don't have the support. If something like uh, if there's a blowout like what we saw in the Gulf of uh, Mexico back in 2010, there is no Coast Guard. I think the nearest uh, the, the nearest Coast Guard miles away. Yes, the nearest Coast Guard station is a thousand miles away. So it would take a considerable amount of time to get all the equipment there. And worse, and uh, I think even worse about this is that now the Coast Guard has acknowledged that they've had to divert resources and personnel away from other things that they do around the world in protecting U.S. coastal waters in order to have people on hand and on site to essentially babysit Shell Oil in the Arctic. Well, so, if that's if if there's nothing else the Coast Guard is for, it's to uh, help out our corporate partners uh, make as much money as possible. Never mind the cost in uh, not just in money, but in natural resources if something terrible goes wrong. Uh, anyway, it's just amazing. I'm sure we'll be talking more about that. And we'll be talking about this coming El Nino that is now being uh, characterized as the Godzilla of El Ninos by the uh, mainstream media who wants you to suddenly pay attention. I don't know if it'll be Godzilla or not, but we'll talk a little bit about yeah. that if we have time later in the show. Because uh, I know, Desi, you had some thoughts on that as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, turning to electoral politics. Um, your, OK, here's your uh, your trigger warning. Uh, your Trump moment is coming up. So, you know, if you must leave the room, please uh, do. Um, late last week, Kevin Drum over at Mother Jones uh, had quoted, I'm not even sure who this is, but something about, you've heard this before, this uh, quote, the surging of candidacies of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are fueled by people's anger with the status quo and desire for authenticity in political leaders. Drum says, uh, oh, please. We hear this every four years. Voters are always angry. They always prize straight talk. They are endlessly entranced by outsiders, and it's always a surprising new phenomenon for the media. Can we just stop it, he writes. This isn't new. It's an evergreen. It's, uh, but political reporters always believe it, and every four years, at least a few of them, take a tour of, quote, real America and find exactly what they set out to find. People are fed up. And yet, every four years, a fairly ordinary mainstream politician is eventually sent to the White House. Anyway, go figure. Writes Kevin Drum, uh, noting that you could probably go back every four years and find the uh, voters are fed up article. Uh, that's correct. Uh, it's, it's nonsense, uh, especially when it comes to Donald Trump. It's not because these voters are fed up. It's because these voters are stupid. These voters are stupid and they are duped and they have been uh, made clowns by the Republican Party for so many years. And I know that sounds harsh, 
I know that, oh, you shouldn't call people stupid. No, until the corporate media realizes that these people have been brainwashed, conned, and duped, and they have fallen for it, they are going to continue treating the Republican Party like a legitimate party. It is not a legitimate party. And that's why, that's why the corporate uh, media, unlike this broadcast, by the way, that's why the corporate media was so slow in understanding that Trump is not a phenomenon. He's not just going to go away. It's not a joke that he's running. He's running. He means it. And he has tapped into the Republican id of the last 30 years. He has cracked the code on how to run as a Republican. And this is not just me saying this. Uh, the fact that they are stupid and duped and that this party has become a non-legitimate party. This is, for example, conserv- real conservatives like Bruce Bartlett. A huge supply-side economics champion. He was the domestic uh, policy advisor for Ronald Reagan. He was the uh, treasury official for George H.W. Bush. He's saying the same thing. People ought to listen to him. Uh, If they won't listen to me, listen to him. Listen to Bruce Bartlett. Last week, late last week on the Chris Hayes program, all in, uh, talking about Donald Trump. Oh, I love Donald Trump uh, because he exposes everything about the Republican Party that I have frankly come to hate. It's just filled with people who are crazy and stupid and have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. And the candidates, no matter how intelligent they may be, just constantly have to keep pandering to this lowest common denominator in American politics. Bruce, that seems and Trump a bit, exposes that. Bruce, I think. that seems a bit, that seems a, uh, a bit of a generalization and maybe an elitist one at that. Stupid, crazy. Well, I think it's uh, I think it's it's pretty obvious to anybody who follows politics. This problem is, to use a a, a term that I don't like, it's not politically correct to point out the obvious, and uh, and that's uh, again I think Trump is pointing this out, uh, uh, among other things. So uh, to to follow up with your comments. One of the things that we're seeing, I think, very clearly this time more than any other uh, year is that issues don't matter. Policies don't matter. The only thing that matters is attitude. And Trump has exactly the right chip-on-your-shoulder attitude that many, many people find extraordinarily attractive that is completely divorced from whatever he's saying about the issues, which is precious little. That's right. He's not saying this is not about the issues. This is not about a policy disagreement between Democrats and Republicans or between somebody like me, a progressive and and what Republicans believe. This is about the fact that Republicans believe nothing. They have no policies. At least these Republican base voters, they're not interested in policies. They are. They are interested in attitude. Lawrence Wilkerson, the uh, the assistant uh, deputy secretary of state to Colin Powell during the Bush administration, was on Bill Maher's real time last night, pretty much saying the same thing over and over again about his own party. Bill Maher himself uh, was talking about this and and kind of nailed it uh, as far as Trump cracking the code. It's not about policy, uh, politi- policy. It's just about their beliefs. They don't care about the policy. They just want to punch people in the face. Here's Bill Maher on that. He's like Godzilla. Everything they throw at the monster makes him stronger. Uh, you know, people thought last week that after the debate performance, Trump would go away. You're so silly. You were watching the debate with your brain. 
to understand the Republican mindset, you have to watch it with your balls. <laughs> when Donald Trump says, I will make China behave, the brain goes, what? And the balls go, damn straight. <laughs> and it's about time somebody said that about... And that's pretty much... That's pretty much what the Republican uh, base voters, the primary voters, are now thinking. Uh, and uh, just to give you an example, I mean, the fact is they have no actual beliefs. And I need to call this out because, again, not about disagreeing with them. It's about the fact that they have no actual beliefs. They are not conservative. I pointed this out for years. They are not actually conservative. They are told by the Republican establishment that they are conservative. So they believe they are conservative, but they're not. They do all sorts of things. They support all sorts of things. Look at George W. Bush's presidency. They are not conservatives. They do not have evangelical beliefs. If you don't believe that, look at the fact that in Iowa, which is supposed to be all about religious conservatives, evangelicals, Donald Trump is leading. He's got three wives. He's uh, anything uh, you know, but a family values guy. And he's beloved in the state of Iowa as we head towards the caucuses there. They don't have the family value stuff, utter rubbish. They don't care about flip-flops. They don't care about small government. They'll have the biggest government uh, necessary if they believe this is what the Republican Party wants them to believe. They don't even care about the Constitution. And here's another example. Scott Walker this weekend in uh, in Iowa at the at the state fair said that we ought to end birthright citizenship. This is from the, the, the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Scott Walker wants to completely ignore that. Do you think that birthright citizenship should be ended? Said well, like I said, Harry Reid said that's not right for this country. I think that's something we should, uh, yeah, absolutely, going forward. We, I think should, end, we should end birthright citizenship. Yeah, it's, to me, it's about enforcing the laws in this country. And uh, again, I make it very clear. I think you enforce the laws. And I think it's important to send a message that we're going to enforce the laws no matter how people come here. We need to uphold the law in this country. Okay, so a little hard to hear there. That's at the uh, Iowa State Fair. He's talking Scott Walker, Governor Scott Walker, who's uh, one of the uh, leading candidates for the uh, 2016 nomination, is saying, yeah, we ought to end birthright citizenship. This is someone who pretends to care about the Constitution. And if you're not familiar with the U.S. Constitution, as apparently Scott Walker is not, this is from the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And it states that, quote, all persons, all persons born or naturalized in the U.S. and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the U.S. and of the state wherein they reside. Period. That clause represented uh, Congress's reversal of the uh, infamous Dred Scott uh, Supreme Court case back in the 1860s, whenever that was. Uh, that had declared, the Dred Scott case declared that African Americans were not and could not become citizens of the U.S. or enjoy any of the privileges and immunities of citizenship. That was turned around by the uh, the 14th Amendment, initially by the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And because the framers of the 14th Amendment were concerned that the Civil Rights Act of 1866 uh, could be overturned uh, via a future Congress, they put in place the 14th Amendment in the Constitution to prevent that uh, Civil Rights Act from being struck down by the Supreme Court or, re or, or repealed in the future. 
And yet, Scott Walker is not interested. He'd be happy to just do away with the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. I point that out again to point out that they are a party. The Republican Party is without any actual governing philosophy other than we will do anything, we will say anything, we will disenfranchise anybody so that our team wins, period. And by the way, that is not good for Democrats. So if Democrats are listening to this and celebrating the fact that the Republican Party has is no longer a legitimate party, I don't believe that is good for your party. I think that competition is good. The competition for ideas is good. A good legitimate debate is important. But that's now become non-existent, at least between the two parties. So the real debate is now among Democrats. It's among Democrats in the Republican and in, uh, in the uh Democratic primary, you know, between Hillary and and Bernie and all of that, uh, we're seeing some decent conversations there and people challenging Bernie from the left. We're seeing that. That's good. But a legitimate Republican Party would be very helpful. And the corporate uh, mainstream media recognizing that the Republican Party is no longer a legitimate political party, that, too, would be useful and perhaps hasten their return to reality. But no, the mainstream corporate media treats the Republicans as they always have, as if they have not gone off the rails, as if they are not crazy. And therefore, this allows a guy like Trump to come in and uh, take over this party. Corporate media needs to get a clue about this, and they need to understand uh, Trump's ongoing ascendancy as king of the Republicans. And that's going to continue until Lord knows what. But uh, you know what? Get used to it. He might as well be the nominee at this point. All right, a quick break, and we are back with much more broadcast, including Diane Russ Tierney, on some actual issues. The death penalty as it uh, moves into history, although perhaps not quickly enough. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Please stay tuned. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We spoke last week about a couple of cases concerning the death penalty. One was about the jury in Colorado, which failed to impose the death penalty on the Aurora, uh, Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooter James Holmes, due apparently to one juror who held out against all of the others, refusing to call for the execution of a man who is... Quite obviously, I I would think everyone would agree, mentally impaired. 
Uh, that juror, still unidentified to my knowledge, is frankly a hero in my opinion. So I just, if you're listening, whoever that juror was, thank you again, whoever you are. Just a few days later, uh, late last week, there was a big decision from the Connecticut Supreme Court finding that the uh, state's death penalty there in Connecticut is unconstitutional under the state's constitution, as I understand the ruling. It's it's all a bit confusing because the issues seem to go back to a 2012 statute passed by the state legislature, which banned the death penalty for crimes that take place after the passage of that law. But it leaves the death penalty in place for some 11 men who are still on death row waiting to be killed. Uh, now, this decision by the Supreme Court, if I understand it correctly, will uh, uh, convert their sentences to life without parole. Here to make sense of all of this and much more concerning the death penalty is Diane Rust Tierney. She is the executive director of the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, where she has served for more than 10 years. She's an expert on criminal justice policy, women's rights and civil rights. She's previously served as the director of the American Civil Liberties Union Capital Punishment Project. Diane Russ Tierney, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate you being here. Okay, uh, we talked about this decision in Connecticut last week, and I want to get to some broader topics as well uh, on this point. But uh, before we do... I want to make sure I understood that Connecticut decision correctly. Uh, if you could, could you explain what the Connecticut Supremes found in their decision specifically last week, as you understand it? Yes, and you are absolutely right. The Connecticut Supreme Court held that the state's death penalty was in violation of that state's constitution, uh, and especially in light of the fact that in 2012 the, the state legislature had repealed the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you, you, the court basically said, you know, we have little more than an illusion of a death penalty in this country. Uh, and I think uh, they're absolutely right. So they basically said, look, we've moved beyond this, literally and, and as a matter of law. Uh, and so you're absolutely right that the, the state of Connecticut's death penalty is unconstitutional under its own state constitution. And they looked at that, uh, that case and they said, well, wait, we've got, uh, we've banned the death penalty for any future crimes, but the ones who have been uh, imposed with that crime, they're still going to have to face death, which means that basically uh, the same crime has a different punishment depending on when you commit it. Is, is that what they, were, what they were looking at, essentially? That, that's absolutely part of it. You know, the, the whole issue here is whether or not we have a punishment that can be applied reasonably, accurately and fairly. And just as you point out, you know, nobody thinks that uh, if you commit a crime on one day, the punishment should be death, but if you commit it on another time, it should be something else. That's it's sort of at the heart of the kind of arbitrariness. But more than that, the court looked at sort of the history of, of the death penalty in Connecticut. It looked at the use of the death penalty, and it concluded, you know, we, we, really, we really do have a consensus that demonstrates that this is no longer how we punish people who commit uh, murder. Well, that was the consensus at, at the Connecticut court, uh, although I, I, it was a, sh a sharply divided court. I think it was five to four. But we have a also a similar situation in Nebraska now, as I understand it. We spoke with a state legislat uh, legislator, a Republican legislator up there in Nebraska a few weeks ago after that state banned the death penalty. But just like Connecticut, there was, I, I can't remember, five or, 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 or nine prisoners who were still on death row whose 
sentences were not uh, changed in any way by that. Do you expect in Nebraska that the courts will will find similarly that it's ridiculous to uh, base the punishment on when you committed the crime, as as seems to be the case now in Nebraska? Well, as I said, the the, the decision in Connecticut was really based on the Connecticut Constitution, so whether Mm -hmm. or not there will be a similar decision will really rest on uh, an analysis on the Nebraska Constitution. Mm -hmm. But the the question is, you know, these issues have been settled. You know, the court uh, looked at this uh, in terms of how the public has looked at these issues, how over the course of, you know, a number of years now we've seen state after state that studies the death penalty decide this just isn't are working where we expect it to work. And I think what we're going to see in Nebraska and, and, and elsewhere is that, the, you know, once people take a hard look at the death penalty and see how it really doesn't serve any of the purposes that people would like it to serve, people move away from it. And let's talk about some of those purposes. But very quickly, how many states at this point still allow for the use of the, of the death penalty? Well, you know, it's, it's Justice Breyer, Justice Ginsburg said in there, uh, dissenting opinion in a case that was decided recently, Gossip versus uh, Gross, mm-hmm. you know, most of the country lives in a place that doesn't have the death penalty. Now, we have death penalty statutes on the books, but the reality is that there are only a handful of jurisdictions in the country that are using the death penalty. Uh, you know, the, the executions that took place last year took place in just three states, Texas, uh, Missouri, and Florida. Uh, and 80% of those of, of those executions took place in, the, in those states. And so we really have um, really the illusion of a death penalty. So, you know, if you look at the, the, the states that have the death penalty on the books, there are 31 states. But as I said, very few of those states actually use the death penalty. There are 19 states that have either abolished the death penalty uh, or have never had the death penalty authorized as a punishment or don't have it authorized as a punishment. But uh, even though it was only those three states, by and large, uh, uh, Missouri, Texas, and Florida, uh, it's still a, a consideration in state after state, as we saw in the in the Colorado case with the uh, the Aurora, Colorado uh, movie theater shooter. Now he that was not a federal case, right? That was a, a state case where that was a state case where you had the one juror, one juror essentially made the difference between life and death for this guy in this you know hor- horrific crime that pretty much everyone on the jury wanted to kill the guy. So, I mean, the death penalty is still out there. It's still being used. It still uh, seems like it's an incredibly uh, expensive way to go, extends these uh, these cases, these these trials. Um, and, and if you could just speak a little bit about that, Diana Rust-Tierney, uh, because this is something that is surprising to me that people don't understand, but I guess it's not talked about a lot. It is much more expensive to put someone to death, to put a prisoner to death, than it is to keep them for life in, in prison, is it not? That's right. I mean, it, it's an incredible waste. It's a waste of resources. It's a waste of energy. Uh, it's a waste of our moral capital. I mean, we have a death penalty that is imposed arbitrarily, we, uh, in, meaning that, you know, we get wrong people who, mm-hmm. are, who are sentenced to death. We have 154 people who have been released from death row uh, because of innocence. Uh, and that's a, you know real people who can tell the story of coming within hours of being executed. That's a real problem. We have the arbitrariness that we were talking about in terms of geographic disparity. You know, the death penalty is limited to a handful of jurisdictions in the country. Uh, even within states, there's not any kind of uniformity as to whether you get the death penalty, uh, let alone across the country. Uh, it, it really is something that is, is creating more and more problems. We're 
seeing that prison workers who have to deal with this, particularly now when we have this incredible risk of uh, botched executions, they are traumatized. I mean, the system is broken from beginning to end. Mm. Uh, and so at the same time that I think we can celebrate the fact that the, the, the death penalty really is in decline in terms of popular support and use, um, we do have these pockets in the country where it is being used, and these mm-hmm. instances in the country where it is sought, uh, which are still problematic. And I think as the, as the death penalty becomes rarer, it becomes more arbitrary and, and, and less defensible. And it is still uh, being used at the federal level as well. We just had a, a verdict in a, the case of the uh, Boston Marathon bomber. So, you know, people look around the country, uh, around the world, look at our country and say, well, you know, the United States itself, this isn't just states. It's actually the federal government. The federal government is still putting uh, its own citizens to death. What, what did you say, uh, Diane, how, how many people did you say had been freed from death row because they were exonerated and found to have not committed the crime they were sentenced to be killed for? There have been 154 people released from death row because of innocence. And that's incredible. And yeah. there's an organization called Witness to Innocence that has been, you know, telling its story and having people go around the country. And I think that's having an incredible impact. It's an amazing story. It's amazing that 154 people have been you know, found innocent. I can only imagine how many prior to that, how many prior to you know, DNA testing and so forth, uh, were put to death, who were completely innocent, and we will never know. It's, it's amazing. There's also an extraordinary racial disparity, and I'll let you uh, speak about that if you want in the application of the death penalty, but... But you wrote, uh, well, actually, go ahead and speak to that. There's another disparity that I want to get to, but let's let's talk about the racial bias in, in this sure, case. Let me, before that, let, me just, let me just correct this out. There have been 155 people. Uh, that's just since the, the last person was released from death row in June of 2015. So, so, that, so what we're seeing is these numbers keep growing. Uh, so it's 155 people. Uh, and well, and one, of them, one of them was... The, uh, the, the example that Justice Scalia had pointed to in the reason why we need to keep the death penalty, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't that, is that right? That's exactly right. And then, and, and then if you look at, the, again, the, the Supreme Court decision, the Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg makes a point in their dissent of, of talking about the, that case. Uh, you know, it, it, it gives you a, a picture of how flawed the system is. You know, this death penalty is riddled with mistakes from beginning to end. But just to talk a little bit about race. Yeah. You know, overwhelmingly, the death penalty is used when a victim is white uh, and not when a victim is a person of color. Uh, and that is something that's been consistent. If you look at the, the homicide rate generally, um, you know, about half of, of homicide victims are are, are people of color, but overwhelmingly the system, you know, seeks the most severe punishment when the victim is white. And that's after you control for all the kinds of variables that you would expect would explain, you know, why there might be differences in how a particular case was treated or why a particular defendant might be treated differently. And then still, in some places, although we've made some progress, the race of the defendant does make it make a make a difference. And so again, in, in a system where we have to you know, you're, you're having the most severe punishment, and where you, you know, you have to have the utmost respect for the law. The, the prospect that would be something as as unconscionable as race influencing the outcomes of mm. these cases um, really undermines not only our confidence in the death penalty, but in our entire criminal justice system. And this is happening in a context where our entire criminal justice system is having a, a, a real self-examination. If if everybody in the country can't be confident 
that police officers won't treat an individual on the street differently based on their race at the very beginning of the process. How can we have confidence in what happens at the end? And so, you know, this death penalty debate that we're having is coming at the time when our entire criminal justice system is, is up for reexamination. And new voices and new people are getting engaged. And so that's the other reason why I believe that, you know, we're going to see a much accelerated rate at which the death penalty is going to continue to be abandoned state by state and in jurisdiction by jurisdiction. I'm speaking with a very optimistic today, Diane Rust Tierney, the executive director of the National Coalition to abolish the death penalty. And and when when you cite those numbers on race, this is not something, this is not an opinion, this is empirical, this is independently verifiable. You can look at the numbers. If you uh, if the victim in the case, if you kill a white person, you are far more likely to be given the death uh, the death penalty than if you kill uh, an African American. That's just uh, th- those are just numbers. That's just math, as I understand it. And similar uh, to that math, you you wrote um, a little bit earlier this year about the continuing decline in the number of death sentences being issued by the courts. That's good. Uh, You point out that there were 35 executions in 2014, and that's down from the peak year in 1998 when there were 98 executed. Only seven states were responsible for those 35 executions. But as as you mentioned earlier, Texas, Missouri, and Florida carried out 28 of last year's 35 killings. That's 80% of the executions. But you add, as executions decline, who is actually being executed? The worst of the worst criminals? Far from it, you write. In fact, instead of the worst of the worst, you could say it's often the least culpable. People with intellectual disabilities and severe mental illness. Now, why has that become the case? Uh, especially when the Supreme Court, as I understand it, previously held that uh, we're, we're not supposed to be executing those with intellectual disabilities. So why are they becoming more and more, uh, th- th- frankly, the victims of the death penalty in this case? Well, that's one of the problems with the way that this court has tried to reconcile our, our values and the law with this practice. You know, over the years, we've seen the court carve out of uh, certain classes of people and say, you know, these people don't have the culpability to really face the most extreme punishment. Mm-hmm. So we, we see that juveniles, people who commit crimes under the age of 18, uh, don't have, because of brain development, what we know from science, the kinds of culpability that say that should be subject to the death penalty. So, so those folks are taken out. People with intellectual disability, uh, what we used to commonly be known as mental retardation, which is a constellation of adaptive uh, challenges that people have, don't have the, the level of culpability. If something about the intellectual disability makes it more difficult for people with that condition to work with their lawyers. Uh, there's a higher incidence of false confessions. Uh, there's a, a, a likelihood that oftentimes that folks have been, have been coaxed into or are following somebody else's lead. There are all these reasons why the intellectual development of these particular groups of people make the death tone inappropriate. Uh, but the, what the court has not done is address the issue of people who have a mental illness that actually is the reason that they uh, commit the crime. Mm. And so that's sort of the, the, so the, another arbitrary, why would, why would that be? Why would you say that, you know, we understand the, the different culpability of a juvenile who, you know, may, may not have the, the capability to sort of make the best judgments, but is not under a delusion about what they're doing and still punish somebody who, because of a delusion, 
engages in, uh, in, in this kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. So uh, it is a huge uh, loophole that is allowing people with intellectual, uh, excuse me, with, with, with uh, mental disabilities mm-hmm. to, to, that are the cause of their uh, crime to be ex- executed. At the other issue that's happening um, with regard to people with intellectual disabilities is the court set out a bright line and said, you know, this category of people cannot be uh, substituted to death for the people with intellectual disabilities, but we're going to leave it up to the states to, you know, come up with the procedures to help us figure out who these folks are. Well, these, the states have been exceedingly stingy uh, in their uh, willingness to, you know, have a test that's going to make sure that we actually don't have any of these people. So we do have cases where there are people with intellectual disabilities that cannot constitutionally be executed who are nevertheless facing an execution because the, the state's procedures uh, nevertheless permit it. And we, we saw that recently in a case um, called Hall versus Florida where state, Florida had an arbitrary cutoff of an IQ and said if, you, if, you, if, you, if your IQ is higher than this, um, you, you can be executed. We, wanna, we don't want to hear anything else about your adaptive behavior, the kinds of things that you normally look at to diagnose whether a person has intellectual disabilities. Fortunately, the Supreme Court turned that back. So, so you have sort of the practical problem of, you know, the, the court not yet having addressed all the people who have uh, mental mm-hmm. conditions that make them inappropriate for the death penalty. And then you also have the, the other problem of states that nevertheless are still trying to to execute people who constitutionally should not be. And and you write about uh, over at the uh, uh, National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty website on, on the blog over there, Diane. You, you write about, uh, you point to some cases, for example, in Georgia, which was the first state to pass legislation outlawing the execution of those with intellectual disability. Um, but w- the standard they came up with is impossible to prove. So they go ahead and... Could still continue to uh, to kill their own citizens. Texas uh, came up with a, a standard which is completely non-scientific. So it seems like if these states want to, uh, if they want to do it, they're going to find a way to do it. And and I find that extremely uh, troubling. We we've gone through some of the. Um, you know, sort of the the disparity, the racial disparity, the uh, uh, the mental uh, disparity in some of these cases, the arbitrariness, uh, the fact that it costs more money to put people to death rather than keep them in jail for life. Uh, just to to cross off one more T and dot one more I here. Let's. Um, uh, uh, what about the deterrent factor? Can you speak to that? Because that's also something that comes along that uh, still in this day in 2015, which kind of amazes me. But they say, well, well, we need this as a deterrent. Is there any evidence, any empirical evidence, that the that capital punishment actually serves as a deterrent against uh, these crimes? There, there really isn't. I mean, there are studies here and there that purport to demonstrate this a deterrent effect. But when you look at those closely, or when experts examine them, the that those that that those claims fall apart. I mean, the reality is. You know, and this is what we have to keep going back to. You know, because we're not having this conversation in the in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the death penalty does not enhance public safety. You know, it doesn't enhance public safety. Uh, and you just have to look, you know, at, at some very top level things to see that. You know, the states that uh, in the parts of the country where the death penalty is still used uh, in the southern region has the highest murder rate. In the in the northeast, which uses the death penalty the least, uh, you see lower murder rates. If you ask, 
law enforcement officials, you know, we, there was a survey that was done by the Death Penalty Information Center a number of years ago mm-hmm. asking chiefs of police, what do you think we need to do to enhance public safety? Uh, and, you know, in that survey, the death penalty was dead last. You know, there were so many other things that they say and everybody agrees we need to do. We need to focus on education. We need to focus on safe and affordable housing. We need to focus on making sure we have a strong economy that produces jobs that people can live on. Those are the things that we need to focus on. And we need to deal with trauma. We need to deal with the fact that there are people who are not getting adequate access to mental health services and who suffer trauma as victims, people who've been victimized, who are not uh, receiving the services. Those are the things uh, that enhance public safety, not the death penalty. And uh, finally, uh, you mentioned uh, a couple of times you cited uh, Justice Breyer and Justice Gin- Ginsburg's uh, uh, comments in, in a recent ruling. Uh, and this, is, I, I think, is the one where Justice Breyer said, quote, I would ask for full briefing on a basic question whether the death penalty violates the Constitution. Uh, does that suggest a sea change at the court that they really want to take a look at uh at the basic constitutional issues of the death penalty, and if so, uh, what has brought them to that? I mean, after all, back in, I think, 1972 ruling, right, they determined that, in fact, it was constitutional, it should be left to the states to decide. I'm just trying to figure out, on the federal level, what might be the process for seeing a moratorium uh, on the federal level for the death penalty uh, akin to what we've seen in so many states? Where does this go from here on the constitutional, on the federal level, as you see it, Diana Rustierney? Well, let me speak to, to Justice Breyer. I mean, certainly it, it suggests that there are two justices of the Supreme Court who believe that it's time to, as we say, call the question on the death penalty. And they observe, you know, I think quite accurately that, you know, things are very different. Um, from what they were when we said this might be okay in 1976. Uh, and they go through a very you know, thorough analysis of, you know, how things are different. And we look at public opinion. Public opinion is at a 40-year low in terms of people who support the death penalty. Opposition to death penalty is at, you know, a high point, at 38%. And then they go through some of the things we've been talking about, about the fact that, you know, as they say, most of the country doesn't, live in a place where there is a death penalty. There's a real death penalty. And they go through and they, they talk about the way in which the death penalty is in decline by every measure. Death sentences are down. Executions are down. Uh, those are the things that, are, that the court believes you know, now demonstrate that, in fact, there is a consensus against the death penalty. You know, the, the, the court's analysis, Eighth Amendment analysis is about trying to discern what the public's real view is. Mm-hmm. about this, this particular punishment. And a punishment is unconstitutional based on two things. The court's discernment of, you know, where does the public's heart really lie with regard to this? And then also their own independent judgment, as they pointed out. And, and what, what Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg say, and I agree with them, is that when you look at the facts, notwithstanding these horrible you know, instances of, of uh, execution still going forward in places like Texas and Florida and Missouri, if you really look at what the popular will is, you know, the people voting with their feet, We've already voted. We've already voted. We, we have states that are every year uh, repealing their death penalty statutes, and in the states that have it, we have states they are not using the death penalty. So their position is, and I think it's right, you know, it's time to look at this again. This is not 1976. We're a whole different place, and in fact, the death penalty is, is not uh, in favor as it was. And, and so at, at a new look at this question will be believed.
result would definitely be uh, ruled unconstitutional. And yet, Diane, you say there is a consensus now against it, and and at the same time, you say that we're still only at what what was it, thirty eight percent are against it. That might be uh, an all time high against it, but it's still a minority. Uh, how well, how do you explain that? Well, there's a difference between opposition mm-hmm. and and and, when the, what is, and what people want to do. And so the court, when they're doing this, their Eighth Amendment analysis, are really saying, you know, what do people think is the is the is the fair punishment? And we look at a range of things. We look at what the, the people are saying they think is appropriate, as expressed through their legislature. And so we look at the fact that we've had, you know, state after state repealing the death penalty. That tells us something. And then you also look at usage. You know, we may have these things on the books. I mean, you know, there's all those jokes about, you know, let's find the strangest law you could find on the books. You know, but if you don't use it, that tells us something, too. And what the court is saying is, you know, when you put together the states that have explicitly taken a a stand against the death penalty, and you put that alongside the states that haven't used the death penalty in nearly a decade, uh, and you look at the fact that even in those states that are using the death penalty, it's only being used in a very small number of, of jurisdictions. Uh, that taken together really tells us that, you know, we don't think that's an appropriate punishment. Uh, it's not just, you know, public opinion. It's really what we, what we do. Uh, and so when you look at what we are actually doing as a country, um, Justice Breyer and, Ken, and Ginsburg have said, you know, it, 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 there's a reason to believe that the con- national consensus has changed from what it was in 1976. Boy, I hope you're right, and I hope they do call that question. I hope it does make its way before the uh, before the Supreme Court, because I, I I do think if if more people uh, heard this conversation, heard people you know discuss so many of the myths uh, that still seem to be in place when it comes to to the death penalty, that that 38 percent against would would end up being a much higher number. And to that end. Diane Russ Tierney, I hope you'll uh, come back with us in the future to talk more about it because there's just not enough conversation about this. It's it's I, I, I'm I'm amazed when I talk to very smart people about this, how much they still seem to misunderstand about the use of the uh, of the death penalty. Well, if I could say one thing, sure. you know, is that we, we you know we we we're this, we've been doing a lot of talk about the court, but we can't sit on our hands and wait for the court. If we want this to change, that you're absolutely right. People need to get engaged, and people need to be uh, talking to their friends and doing the public education. I can only be on so many radio shows and in so many places. We need many more people who have this information. And so what you're doing is so important. And I would encourage people to go to our website, 90millionstrong.org. We have a pledge there where people can pledge to get involved and be part of this change. So the court will ultimately sort of declare what is already the truth, which is that it's over. But if it's going to really be over, we've got to get involved. Boy, I hope you're right. I hope it is over. Uh, Diane Rust Tierney, Executive Director of the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. Uh, you can go sign on over at 90millionstrong.org or their website. Their main website is uh, ncdap.org. Diane, great talking to you today. Greatly appreciated, and uh, let's do it again in the future. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Okay, quick break, and we're back with our few remaining minutes on the broadcast with Godzilla El Nino. Stay tuned.
until this this fall, right, Desi Doyen? Is that when the uh, Godzilla El Nino is uh, supposed to hit? Well, that's the idea. You know, all El Ninos are different, apparently. That's what the scientists are telling us. So they're like, hey, don't hang your hat on this yet. Don't make any bets. We'll um, see. We don't well, know. We'll see. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yeah, they have been saying this for years. Yes. This El Nino is coming. It's going to be this year. It's going to be this. Well, now we're actually at a point where the... Uh, the the temperatures of the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, I understand, are four degrees higher than normal now. Yes. And scientists are saying, okay, this looks like it. This is going to be the El Nino to end all El Ninos, which means a huge amount of rain out here in California, which, frankly, we could use. Yes. But, and there is a big but here. Well, here's the way, uh, here's the way Bill Maher referred to it over the weekend. We are begging El Nino to hit us. That is what it has come to. We are praying for one weather disaster to save us from the other weather disaster. That is kind of what it's come to at yeah. this point. Uh, but be careful what you wish for. Uh, Des, we were talking a little bit over the weekend about we know how bad this can actually be. We have a record of this. Is it the Great Flood out here in California, the Great Flood of 1862? Yes, the Great Flood of 1862 is one of the greatest inland floods in the na in national history. It hit Nevada, it hit California, Oregon, and Washington, but California was the worst hit. It rained for nearly 40 days straight <laughs> in California. They, I think they said L.A. got four times its annual weather, uh, its annual rainfall. It created... The Central Valley turned into an inland sea, four feet deep, 30 miles wide, 300 miles long. Really? Hundreds of thousands of cattle died. Hang on people a died. Four, four feet deep? Yes. 30 miles wide? Yeah, and that's on average. Some places were deeper than that. For 300 miles yes. down the central coast of California. The Central Valley central of California. Valley. It actually, wow. uh, because it caused so much devastation that the state of California had to declare bankruptcy because they weren't going to be collecting any taxes that year. And it also permanently shifted California from ranch land to farmland because of all the cattle that got swept away. And essentially, the drought here has gotten so bad that that's what you just described is what a lot of people are, are wishing for. Not obviously that flood conditions, but right. they're counting on this huge amount of rain, which could lead to what you just described, the Great right. Flood I mean, of 1862. Basically, the scientists it's, don't know for sure if that was an El Nino year in 1862. They just don't have the data, but mm -hmm. it, they don't think it was. So that means what they're... They point to the Great Flood of 1862 as a way of saying, hey, here's an actual example with historical accounts that shows us how bad it can get. So be careful what you wish for, yeah. because we have a very strong example of, of just how much rain we can get and how much we can't really tolerate, especially with the construction and infrastructure and people who have moved to California since 1862. And, and while all these scientists uh, seem to say, obviously, you know, any kind of rain at this point will would be welcome, uh, if it comes all at once like that it runs off it runs off into the ocean what we need is for rain uh, for snow yes. in the higher elevations the snowpack then sticks around and works its way down into the reservoir very slowly it time. melts instead of coming all at once which is a problem well, we'll see uh, what comes and what doesn't at this point, because they have been predicting this uh, El Nino for a while, and it hasn't come, and we'll see if it uh, finally uh, hits this year and what effect, or if any, it has on the, uh, on the drought. Uh, lots to look forward to this year. 
uh, or a lot to hide from, depending on how you might look at it. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, Diane Rust-Tierney, Executive Director of the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. Check out their work at ncdap.org. We will be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel, tomorrow. Until then, if you missed any portion of today's program, you can always download it at bradblog.com, or you can subscribe for free and get them every day uh, via iTunes, where we hope you'll give us a good review to make it a little easier for the rest of the whole wide world to find the Bradcast. You can and should follow us on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. And you can email me if you disagree about anything I've said today or even if you agree with anything I've said today. Our email address is bradcast at bradblog.com. Actually, if you disagree with anything Desi had to say, <laughs> write to us. Bradcast, even better. Yeah. Bradcast at bradblog.com. All right. We'll see you soon. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.